Hello and welcome to another edition of Pathfinders, the podcast series from RBC Capital Markets that explores the fast-moving world of biopharma. I'm Joe Coletti, your host, and today we have a special guest, a regular on the podcast, Noel Brown, who is our head of U.S. Biotechnology Investment Banking here at RBC Capital Markets. Welcome, Noel. Thanks, Joe. So I've gotten to know Noel very well over the course of uh, the first season of our podcast, and this is probably the first time he's going to be our featured guest all by himself, which I'm very excited to have this conversation. I think there's a lot we're going to learn today. I really wanted to start with, we're in this moment now, it's, it's very uncertain and volatile times. I don't think that's a secret to anybody, really. As we think about all the dynamics that are sort of at play, Noel, you've been in this business for over 20 years, advising biotech companies. And so I really wanted to hear from you is, how do you think about times like this? What's your approach whether it's now, whether it was 2008, whether it's another time in the future, what's the right way to think about this if you're in the biotech space based on your experience? It's a good question, Joe. And thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a very different seat. It's a less comfortable seat, but uh, <laughs> I am excited about being here. It has been a long time in this business, over 20 years. And I think the 20 plus years of experience has really given me some comfort. And by that, I mean, no period of volatility really gives me much pause or doesn't cause me anxiety or sleeplessness just because in some respects, they're all kind of the same. And I'm, I'm simplifying it tremendously because I'm just not a market analyst by any measure. But these things, volatility goes up and volatility comes down. The XBI, the Dow, the S&P go up and come down. With the exception of this most recent downturn, the very low point every pullback, as I'll refer to them, has been higher than the prior point of pullback. So if you think about a chart, think about the nadirs, the very low points of each of these, again, pullbacks in the market. Each one has been higher than the prior. Now, this most recent one tested that analysis and pushed it a little bit lower. So it's a slightly different market. It went a little lower and it also was a little longer than we're used to seeing. But it still shows signs of coming back with the same quickness that every other downturn has come back with. And the one thing we noticed was in the three months post a downturn, so when things began to turn around, much of what was lost during the course of that downturn is recaptured in the first three months. Not all of it, but much of it, and definitely all of it within the 12 months that follow. So the volatility causes some hardship, but I would say in biotech in particular, we can't really afford to spend too much time analyzing market conditions and whether or not the VIX is high or low or whether or not the broader markets are in any kind of pressure. Because the reality is companies in this space are driven by only one timeline, and that's development of their drugs in the clinic. I mean, if you need to fund a phase 2B trial, it doesn't matter if you're in the midst of a recession or in the midst of a bull market. You still have to raise in order to fund that trial and it may be a little easier during a bull market. It's tougher during bear markets, but there is still a deal to be done in a bear market in this space. I think that's a great point. Market goes down, must, must come up, but also the constant, what this industry does, just the essence of, of the industry and the need. I think that's a great point. It sort of drives me to a second part of the question here is these constants are true for any company in the space. When you are in this kind of environment, because obviously bull versus bear, there's different things that you have to consider within that context. When you're advising companies and they're talking to investors in these kind of time periods, are there things that 
They need to be asking their investors or talking to investors or ways that they should be engaging with particular investors. That's different than if times were much smoother and less volatile. If I was to give clients advice, it's be very mindful of what it is you're saying and not in the sense of like inside information, like material, non-public information. Obviously, you have to be careful with that. But it's also think about the audience and the environment in which they're living in. Because while I make these kind of broad claims about how I don't really care about the broader market and companies' needs aren't driven by macroeconomic phenomena, the investors you're seeing sometimes often are affected by many of these macroeconomic forces. And so it's an audience that perhaps may be sensitive depending on when you're going to go speak to them. And so if they're under pressure, right? You have to be careful because they may be sensitive and they may interpret things that you say with a level of cynicism. Sometimes things that a company feels are really big, critically important milestones in their growth and their evolution as a company aren't necessarily that important or critical from an investor's perspective. So there are some things that really they're critical advancements in the corporate existence of a company, right? Or in your staffing from an HR perspective, like bringing on a chief development officer that you needed, for example, right? These things are really important to advancing a company internally, but externally, it doesn't change the value of the company, right? When dialoguing with investors, be mindful of what it is that is important from a share price perspective, right? And there are certain things you do that are important from an internal management perspective that may not necessarily translate into what an investor would view as a milestone. Because that's one of the issues we have sometimes is when you think about a corporate finance strategy, it's perhaps easier to execute on that strategy when you're doing it on the back of a critical catalyst. That may be a phase two data readout or some kind of important milestone from a regulatory perspective. You know, you got breakthrough designation from the FDA on your drug for that indication. But some things don't necessarily create new opportunity for the company commercially, which then doesn't translate into any change in what the share price would be, which then from, again, a very cynical perspective, isn't really that critical from a market perspective. As I listen to you talk about that, my follow-up is you also talk to a lot of investors, right? It's not just companies. That's part of what you do. What kind of questions are you asking investors as you think about all this? Yeah, it's a good question. The things I ask investors are sort of basic and partly because I'm in a strange role, right? As banker, I'm oftentimes at a deep intellectual disadvantage relative to my clients who are the corporates, right? The innovators in of the space. I'm also at a intellectual disadvantage relative to the investors. And so some of the stuff I ask is, what are you looking for? Right? Which is a, a sort of very basic question and very open-ended. But I'm often trying to probe just so that we as bankers are bringing the right things to market, that we are finding the right investors when we're trying to pair capital with companies that need said capital. I think it's important to bring people together that have shared interests. And so some investors will say, listen, I'm really interested in innovative technologies, right? Like Artificial intelligence where it's being deployed with drug discovery is what I'm looking for, as opposed to specific drugs or monoclonal antibodies for a particular cancer. There are others that say, I'm not looking for game-changing platform technologies. I want to see drugs, right? Bring me drugs and something later stage, like phase two and beyond. So it's important to sort of find out what folks are looking for, what kind of deal structures they're interested in doing. So 
we do try to find out what part of the market they're playing in, what kind of deal structures they're playing in. Is it early stage? Is it later stage? Are you willing to do things that are private and ride with them through an IPO and beyond? Or is it you really want larger caps in the five, six, seven billion plus range? We ask about geography, therapeutic areas of interest, modalities. Some investors don't like gene editing, right? Some don't like beyond looking at small molecules because that's kind of the old original world of pharma. There's a range of things. And frankly, because there are many different investment styles, so you kind of have to tease out what is working for people and then matching them up with the right opportunities. There are two survey results that I want to share with you and then and sort of ask you a question. You know, one conference board did their CEO survey not too long ago. And I think it was two thirds of the CEOs surveyed expected the Fed's war on inflation would eventually trigger a recession. And I think it was 61% of CEOs that were already reporting economic conditions worsening since the end of 21, in their view. Now, on the other side of that, RBC Capital Markets, our biotech research team just released their sort of mid-year report on the sector. And they do sort of a small survey with investors. And the interesting thing there was about 60% of the investors they surveyed were very bullish on the sector, particularly the second half of the year into 2023. So are you an optimistic banker? Are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? Where do you kind of fall? Because when I look at those two results, one, the environment's worsening, but on the other hand, investors still feel really good about the sector. Why do we see that? And why do we see that difference? I would characterize myself as neither optimist nor pessimist, but I think a... Are you a cynic? Yeah, I think I I operate with a healthy level of cynicism. A healthy level because I'm not dark and gloomy about it, but I try to be as objective as possible, partly because clients ask questions to which I am supposed to provide answers. And the best way in which to answer those questions is directly and unfiltered. And while being unfiltered may have some negative impacts in my personal interactions with friends and family, I believe it's valuable in my dealings with clients because these are important, critical, strategic decisions they're making for their companies. And they need to hear real answers, not candy-coated messages that make them feel good about things. Right Now, when you talk about the stats of CEOs who were being interviewed by the conference board or the survey of biotech investors, I think it also highlights different personality traits. I think you've got to be a person who's excited and optimistic about what the future holds when you come into biotech, both as a executive and as an investor. I mean, these are the people that are playing for really big upside where probabilities of success can be quite low. I mean, everybody's making very educated, intelligent decisions based on prior experience and knowledge that they've developed by reviewing and learning and studying these technologies. But if you look at the math, right, I mean, I think you only have a 6% chance from conception to ultimate approval. It's between 4 and 6%. So if you think about those odds, right, it sounds challenging. So it does require someone who's optimistic by nature. And I think in biotech, most people are optimistic. So perhaps I am a minority perspective in the world of biotech. I develop anxieties over how things can go wrong and I just want them to avoid the speed bumps, right? I believe that having great management is more important than having great technology. I think I've seen great technology in the hands of those who were not as good managers, we'll say. And even though it might've been the best technology in the world, we'll rarely see the light of day. And I've seen moderately interesting technologies in the hands of great managers go all the way, right? So... I really do focus on the people side personally. 
I also haven't been in a lab since 1989, so I can't rely on being the sharpest expert at whatever particular technology a client is developing. So I'm better off working around people than I am the technologies. If you want to come up with a new tablet, right, your development times are short, right? Intel throws you a couple chips and then you put together your thing and then prototype to product. It's quick. I don't know how long it took to develop the first iPhone, but it was a lot shorter than the first drug for Alzheimer's. So if you think about navigating those waters over extended periods of time, it's very difficult. There's a lot of things that we don't give these management teams credit for. Like, for example, it's not just driving the development of the drug, but think about managing a culture of an organization over the course of a changing landscape. And over a period where there's many times in that existence where you can't demonstrate that you're winning, right? Like you're busy and you're plugging away and everybody's delivering, but you don't have objective measures of success. There are big upticks in success at certain of these milestones when data reads out or things kind of go your way with a study or a trial. But sometimes you got a couple of years in between certain of those events and you're just trying to keep an organization going and keep people excited. So it really does require a visionary leader. It is at the end of the day, right? A form of technology. Like you've got to be that sort of inspiring type of personality that keeps people focused and motivated when it's not patently obvious that what you're working on is going to be a slam dunk win. I hope you're enjoying our conversation with Noel Brown and that you'll stick around for the second half. But first, just a reminder that you're listening to Pathfinders in Biopharma, presented by RBC Capital Markets. I'm your host, Joe Coletti. Our goal on the podcast is really to bring you trusted market insights from industry experts in the fast-changing world of biopharma, people who know how to turn change into a competitive advantage. To find other episodes, you can go to rbccm.com forward slash biopharma. I hope you'll share this podcast with friends, colleagues, and anyone you know who could use some perspective on the changing investment landscape in this industry. Now, let's continue the conversation. I can't talk to a banker and not talk a little bit about M&A. There's been obviously some big deals with pharma more recently. And so the headlines, there's a lot, I think, of optimism out there for the second half of the year and beyond that we're going to see more M&A activity. I'm just curious kind of what's your sort of interpretation or feeling sort of at the moment. On that front, I am more optimistic. When you think about the broader pharma industry, I mean, they're facing patent expirations of a magnitude they haven't historically, right? And before 2030, on the far end, there's probably 200 billion of revenue that's at risk, right? They're sitting on incredible amounts of capital, 200 billion of cash, probably 500 billion of firepower, if not more. When you put that together, you get this perfect storm of larger potential acquirers who have real needs in order to propel their businesses. They will have to bring in drugs and technology or figure out a different way to survive in the longer term because losing that sort of revenue obviously leads to shrinkage of your platform and either you're going to be a smaller company going forward that just doesn't have the same heft you once had or you're going to have to bring it in. And we're seeing... A lot of exciting deals getting done, both uh, where pharma is acquiring both technologies and approved drugs 
as well as drugs uh, in development that either complement what they already do or that are entirely new areas for them, right? I mean, if you think about Pfizer alone has done multiple exciting deals just in the past few months and interestingly have gone in directions that we previously thought they weren't going to go, like CNS. I mean, they originally did a deal spitting out CNS. Many of those assets became what is now Cerebell, which is a successful biotech company in its own right. And so we thought that was a shift away from CNS, which it was at a time. And interestingly, they've gone and acquired Biohaven, which their main drug is for migraine, but gets them back into the CNS game. And so again, things kind of, they shift, interests shift and companies have to evolve. And I think the exciting thing for pharma is figuring out what it is that they're going to be in the next 10 to 20 years and whether or not a business development strategy that involves acquiring other companies helps them be that new pharma company they foresee themselves being many years down the road. From the biotech perspective, these companies all have to sort of be aware. I don't think they should plan for acquisition because that's just not, that's just not good strategy because we just don't know when, right? So they should plan as best they can to achieve success on a standalone basis, assuming it is achievable. I mean, sometimes you're developing in an indication where you simply can't do the trials because of cost and resources required. Like if you were developing a new drug for rheumatoid arthritis, right, you're going to have to find 4,000 naive patients all around the world. That's not something the small biotech company can successfully do. However, if you're focusing on indications that are smaller and more manageable, then you can plan to take it as far as you can take it, right? Because sometimes it requires you launching a drug, demonstrating its value to patients, demonstrating that it's on a path to really becoming a go-to standard of care, or at least being accepted as one of the main drugs in a space for treating a particular disease. When you think about the innovation driving this sector, and you think about what you're seeing out there, what are you most excited about? So the thing I'm most excited about is perhaps more of a trend than any particular technology. And it's really the success and the progress that we're witnessing in CNS, right? So neurology, it's always been kind of a personal interest. The brain is really, you know, I say I'm not offending anybody, poorly mapped out as far as function. And we're still understanding, you know, we're learning every day more and more about the biology of diseases of the central nervous system. But what's really interesting is seeing what I believe is a shift in the stance of the FDA towards the importance of CNS. And one example of that, and this is like a highly debated topic, but the value of the approval of Agihelm Biogenes drug for Alzheimer's, from my perspective, was a demonstration of the FDA's stance on approvability of drugs and providing options to patients suffering from terrible neurological diseases. The accelerated approval pathway was put in place to promote the development of drugs for HIV. It was then adapted and deployed for the development of drugs in oncology. And that's why we saw this tremendous amount of productivity in the development and approval of drugs for various cancers. Applying that same pathway, that script, to neurology. And I think it's a recognition of the fact that this is critical. And it goes everywhere from 
neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's to neuropsych. So I have one other, one other question. Well, maybe a clarification. Do I have it right? I believe you're a bit of a racer in your own personal life. I think you have a hobby that I'd love to just hear, hear a little bit about before we close. <laughs> I do have a hobby. And I used to call myself a race car driver. I made myself a promise that I would take a break. Now that promise was inspired by something called COVID, where I was going to take a break from racing and focus on building out our team here at RBC and getting us to a point where it is one of the leading biotech teams on the street. I figured that was going to require all of my attention. So I sort of hung up the helmet for a couple of years. That has become one of the most interesting things to me that I do outside of this job and my family. And surprisingly, I found that there are a few other race car drivers lurking around in the industry. I'll leave them unnamed because I don't know if they share that about themselves. But it shouldn't be that surprising, I guess, to me that certain personalities like that are drawn to it because it is a high technology sport. What kind of speeds are we talking about here? You know, you never get to blisteringly crazy speeds because there aren't tracks that are long enough to allow you to get up to those speeds. So you're at the high end of speed if you're getting up to high 160s or you know mid 170 miles per hour. So meditation at 160 miles an hour. You'd be shocked. I, I think because the, the sport requires so much attention, right? Like so much of my capacity to think is consumed with the activity of driving that it displaces all other things I can possibly be troubled by or thinking about. When I put the helmet on, jump behind the wheel, it doesn't matter what stress is going on, be it in my personal life or work life, it's truly non-existent inside the car. And so as loud as race cars are, it is the quietest place in the world. It's literally you and a spotter in your ear, maybe you're an engineer, but you don't hear from them that often. And so it's just, it's just quiet, <laughs> loud, but at the same time, mentally quiet. So I, I really, from, I come back like mentally rejuvenated from a race weekend. I mean, it's, I, I believe it's probably comparable to how some people feel coming back from like a yoga retreat where your brain just gets like rejuvenated and you feel like, like I come back inspired to do more. Well, I think that is an excellent way to wrap. Thank you, Noel, for all your time today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Really appreciate your time and your insight and just your unique perspective and frankly, your candor about how you work with clients, how you think about things, how you manage through times like this. All right, Joe, thanks for having me. It was uh, a lot of fun. 